The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz/donate. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi, looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise in banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi, making Kiwi better off. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to When the Facts Change, a new podcast that I, Bernard Hickey, will be putting together every week on the economy, on business, on technology, on housing, housing and housing, because these are the things that matter to us and I'm fascinated. When the Facts Change is going to be a lot about the news but also what's underneath the news. And it's a podcast that we're doing together with Kiwi Bank. And I can't think of a better person from Kiwi Bank to talk about these fun things in the political economy and business than Jared Kerr, who is Kiwi Bank's chief economist, an old sparring partner, fun chatter on the issues of interest rates, house prices, central banking, all the fun stuff. In the last week, we have seen uh, yet more signs that the housing market is hot and continuing to rise. Jared, welcome to the spin-off. Tell us where you think house prices are going at the moment. Look, we've seen an extraordinary rise in house prices over the last year. Uh, we have seen house prices rise an incredible 22% in the last year. And there's a lot of momentum still out there. People are still coming to banks asking for loans. People are still wanting to get wow. on board. So you're saying it could go higher? Because the are. politicians keep saying it's unsustainable. It's as far as it can go. Really? Well, we've seen a lot of momentum. People are still coming down taking out mortgages, looking to get on the uh, property ladder. So I think with just a little bit of momentum, we'll see house prices uh, rising towards 25 30% on the year. And that's just that momentum continuing over summer. Wow, um, that is something. And you're not the only one. I mean, the Reserve Bank and the Treasury themselves are saying uh, that 20 to 30% range in the year to come. And that's why the government is so um, aggressive, it says says it's going to have some bold policies uh, in the next few weeks and in the budget that's coming up in May to try and attack both the supply and the demand drivers on on housing. Uh, one of those is interest rates. And uh, we've seen in the last year, the Reserve Bank cut the official cash rate and then start its bond buying program. Some people call it money printing. This is where it uh, uses money on its own balance sheet to buy government bonds, to push down interest rates. And uh, we're not the only ones doing it. All around the world, central banks, to try and get their economies going, uh, have been pushing down on long-term interest rates. And just in the last three or four weeks, there has been some drama on financial markets. Tell us what's, what's happening out there. Yeah, so last year was all about COVID and the spread of COVID and lockdowns, and we were in a very dark place. 
This year is all about vaccines. This is about the vaccine rollout and the light at the end of the tunnel. And we've also seen an extraordinary response from governments. And the US is a, is a classic example with this $1.9 trillion package coming in, spraying money to households, $1,400 each, cash in your back pocket, go spend it, have some fun, and let's kickstart this economy. Now, markets are looking at that and thinking, OK, the economic data looks better already. The outlook looks a lot better with all this extra funding coming through from governments as you say, interest rates, you know, on the floor, lowest they've been, uh, even lower than what we saw in the 1950s. It's all quite stimulatory. It's all very positive for growth. So they're, they're saying, here comes the inflation, and they're starting to push up those longer-term interest rates. Yeah. Now, we've had these periods before. We've seen this so-called inflation genie coming out of the bottle uh, a few times in the last 10 years, but doesn't actually manage to escape. So there's another question being raised is all of this going to be inflationary? And it started to be priced into interest rate curves. So yield on, on five-year, 10-year, 30-year bonds has increased dramatically. And most of it is an increase in inflation expectations, as you say. Central banks are effectively telling us they will let the economy run hot. They will let inflation run to the top or even through the upside of their mandated targets they want to make sure we get out of it this time because, let's face it, over the last 10 years, they haven't met their inflation mandates. It's surprised on the low side. They want to be surprised on the high side this time before they respond. And that's the difference this time, that central banks, where previously they might have you know, pulled the trigger quite early on interest rate hikes to um, really damp down inflation in the future because they're really worried about inflation. Now, after 10 years of having inflation well under 2% in most parts of the world, they're thinking, gee, we're going to be quite slow on the trigger this time. We actually want to encourage a bit more heat in the economy. But the problem for the, for the central banks now is that because the markets are saying, we think there's going to be inflation, we're putting up long-term market interest rates. It's a classic fight, the market versus the Fed. And who's going to win this one? Well, you see, there are two parts to a curve, in, in my opinion. There's the, there's the short-end interest rates, which are predominantly dr driven by the cash rate, the overnight rate. So the central bank has a lot of control over interest rates out to two, three, even five years. They lose control the further out the curve that they go. Now, I think it would be quite easy for most central banks, including the Fed, to come out and say, we're not doing anything with the cash rate for the next two, three years, like the RBA has come out and said. That'll hold down those short-term rates. The longer-end rates will continue to flap in the wind and I think continue to, to push higher. The movement higher in those longer-end rates has been dramatic and it's been very quick, but I am not worried about the levels at which they are at. You see, a 1.6% yield on a 10-year US Treasury is not high. A 2% yield on a 10-year New Zealand government bond, again, not high. It looks high compared to the 44 basis points we had last year, but when you consider the growth inflation, outlook, and term premium, etc., it's actually not that high at all. And so far, the central banks have done that. They've said, OK, um, you know, 
We've noticed this rise in interest rates. We're keeping an eye on it. But they haven't come out with their big bazookas yet and uh, thrown a whole bunch of new printed money into the markets to buy government bonds. And that's the thing we'll be watching. There's been a few things. The Reserve Bank of Australia has nipped in there and thrown a few hundred million extra. And uh, even our own central bank, although tiny, tiny amounts really, in the last couple of weeks has been buying a, a few more extra bonds. Well, see, our LSAT program is running out of room. Yes. Because our government doesn't actually have enough debt. I know there's a lot of talk about <laughs> taking on too much debt, but from a central bank's perspective, doing QE, there's not enough to buy. And the reason this is so interesting to everyone, this is the reason I get up in the morning and go straight to my phone to look at the 10-year US Treasury bond yields. Sad, I know, I need to get out more. It's because this is the key thing that drives what happens with mortgage interest rates. Where they move will drive interest rates in New Zealand. And uh, that will be the key thing to watch in the next few weeks. Will the banks start passing on some of those higher market interest rates? Yeah, it's an interesting discussion. I mean, we have seen such a, a sharp increase in wholesale interest rates. You know, will that be absorbed or will that be passed on to higher mortgage rates or will we access the flip funding more? There are ways uh, to, to juggle this, but if interest rates continue the way they have, where we've seen a, a big shift higher in two to three year rates, as well as those longer end rates that you talk about, they'll have to get passed on to mortgage rates eventually. And if that's not wanted by the central bank, then I think them coming in and playing in the swap market is what they'll do and they'll play in that two to three year space and they can squash the short end of the Kiwi market quite easily. So that's the interest rate side of things. Then on the other side of the equation is what banks are allowed to do by uh, central banks and in particular uh, prudential regulators. Now in other parts of the world, the prudential regulator and the central bank are often different People. That's the case in England and Australia. Uh, but in New Zealand, we've just got the one um, group of people, the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, who are both telling the banks um, how much capital to put aside, how safe they need to be, and at the same time setting interest rates for the economy. So on this prudential side of things, there's a lot of action going on. We had the Reserve Bank Governor in the last week say that he's very keen, within weeks actually, to start trying to uh, slow down some of this almost fear of missing out FOMO, you know, um, frenzy type activity that you're seeing with some rental property investors, some people thinking, gee, I've got to get into this. I don't want to miss out on that next 20%. I can use some of my equity in my home, which just jumped up and I can uh, slice it up and put it into a couple of rental properties with a cheap loan from the bank. So on that uh, area of prudential or what the Reserve Bank uh, forces or allows the banks to do, uh, we're expecting perhaps something on the interest-only area and maybe something with debt-to-income multiple limits. Tell us you know, why it's important to watch what the Reserve Bank does on that interest-only and debt-to-income multiple limits. Yeah, so I've actually been advocating um, what the Australians did, uh, APRA did in 2016, and that was take a closer look at each mortgage and say, these aren't priced correctly. There's more risk on an interest-only loan than there is on a principal and interest. 
quite obviously because you wake up in 10 years' time, your loan size is still the same and all you've done is pay the interest. Whereas someone on P&I is much safer in 10 years' time, they've run down that principle. I think we need to price those loans differently. I think an interest-only loan needs a much higher interest rate because of the risk associated with it. You can also take that one step further and say an investor loan needs a higher interest rate than an owner-occupier or a first-home buyer loan, again, because of the extra risk in an investor loan compared to a, a, an owner-occupier loan. So how does the Reserve Bank get the banks to you know, have different types of interest rates for different types of borrowers? In Australia, what they say to the banks is, if you're lending to a rental property investor who's a riskier proposition, you have to put more capital aside when you make a loan to them than, let's say, a first-home buyer who's moving into their own home home. So there's some scope there for the Reserve Bank to say to the banks, just put some more capital aside for those rental property investors. That's exactly how it's done. Yeah. So the risk weightings on each loan need to be changed, basically. You could put a, a you know an even lower risk weighting on a first home buyer if, if you wanted to, or a lower risk weighting on a loan that goes towards building a new dwelling the supply problem, but then a higher risk weighting on investor and definitely higher uh, risk weighting on interest-only loans. There's also the chance that the Reserve Bank could come up with a debt-to-income limit. Well, you know, a DTI on everyone would adversely impact first-home buyers relative to uh, investors. So actually excluding first-home buyers or even owner-occupiers and only putting DTIs on investors might be the option. But again, you know, that would all come under alongside the LVRs, hopefully a higher interest rate, as I'm suggesting, and then, you know, debt to income restrictions as well, just to make sure that there's not not a lot of speculation going on in the market. And believe it or not, I don't believe there is anyway, but just making sure that the banking system is, is safe, because these house price gains, what we're seeing in the housing market is unsustainable. We're going to talk now with Nicola Willis, who is the National Party's housing spokesperson. She's been giving Megan Woods a hard time in Parliament. And also Helen O'Sullivan, who's been around the housing market for quite some time uh, with the uh, Real Estate Institute. And she's currently the CEO of Crockers and was previously the CEO of Kiwi Build and also Ockham, a, a well-known apartment developer in Auckland. So she knows this story very well. Let's talk first to Nicola about her unit titles bill, something she managed to sneak into Parliament. So Nicola, how does this private unit titles members bill make it more affordable to either buy or rent a home? So what it's trying to do is remove some of the headaches for existing owners of apartments and those living in apartments, but also open the door so that more New Zealanders can make that choice in the future. Because what we hear from people uh, when we say, would you consider living in an apartment, is they say, oh, no, I'm very worried about the disclosure requirements, for example, and I'm worried about the way body corporates uh, operate. So what uh, this bill has come from is a process where uh, the 2016 review into the Act uh, looked at some of the issues that were occurring. Then Nikki Kay, the former MP for Auckland Central, worked with a number of people uh, living and working in apartments and said, what's your top 10 list of complaints? What are the issues we should deal with in a reform bill? Uh, And that's what we have in front of us. 
Can you give us some examples of how this bill might change a practice or a problem we have right now? Well, one example is this issue of disclosure. So, of course, when you're buying a property from someone, they're required to disclose to you things about uh, the condition of that property. But what we find in an apartment complex is that sometimes an individual owner of an apartment might be able to quite legitimately say, I didn't know about the seismic issues or the weather tightness issues before I sold it to you. And that puts buyers in a very difficult position. So this bill requires uh, the body's corporate to sign off on disclosures to future buyers and also to give them access to minutes of previous meetings, to official documents they have, so that if people in that apartment building know there's an issue, the buyer's going to find out too. And that's really important because then we can say completely honestly to everyone wanting to buy an apartment, you have full rights, full information, full disclosure. And the other issue that people mention when they talk about apartments is leasehold versus freehold. Um, Is it a body corporate? Uh, Does it, um, for example, do you have to pay fees every month? How does the Unit Titles Bill get around this issue or talk about these issues? Well, there are different structures and the Unit Titles Bill doesn't preclude people choosing other legal arrangements. But what it works to do is make sure that the body corporate option is a, is a good sound one. So some of the problems that have occurred in the past with body corporate governance are around conflicts of interest, those not being disclosed. So you might have the situation where the developer has built a building and has taken over the maintenance contract uh, for an apartment block uh, and is paying um, themselves quite a handsome fee for that. Uh, so making sure that those sorts of arrangements can't be in place. Increasing the professionalism of those charged with managing body corporates. These are people managing literally hundreds of millions of dollars worth of levies and funds. Uh, We have a right, I think, to expect that they apply some good governance, that they are declaring conflicts. Uh, So improving things in that way so that if you are in a body corporate, you can be confident that things are being run professionally, well and transparently to a good standard. So the current government, the Labor government, has sent a directive to the Reserve Bank saying you must consider housing unaffordability when you make your monetary and prudential policy. And it looks like they're going to mostly use the um, LVR and potentially a new DTI tool and possibly uh, make it difficult for rental property investors to get interest-only loans. We don't know yet. But um, how could the government, you know, order or um, suggest to banks through the Reserve Bank to be friendlier to apartment developers, but also people who are buying um, apartments secondhand or off the plan? Well, there's a number of steps here, um, starting with the gentle suggestion uh, and going through to a firmer hand. And the gentle suggestion could just be for the Reserve Bank to have have the suggestion to it that it ask commercial banks to more transparently reveal to them the basis on which they're making their risk-weighting judgments that is leading them to only lend in small amounts to small apartments. Now, that potentially is within scope of a directive from the Minister of Finance which has said, I want you to have regard to the government's housing objectives. Now, one of the government's housing objectives should surely be that we are trying to increase the choice of dwelling types across New Zealand, including small apartments. Now, one of the debates we're having at the moment is what does affordability look like? What's your vision? I mean, what would you say to all those people who've just paid, you know, a very high price for an apartment or a house in in Auckland and now they're not so keen on lower prices? Right now, we know that the ratio between incomes and house prices has got really out of whack. 
not only with where it's been historically in New Zealand, but also with the rest of the world, so that we are now measured on those terms, income to prices, one of the least affordable places in the world. So what I would like to see happen over time is for that ratio to come down uh, so that people are spending less of their income in order to rent or to buy. Now, Labor says they'd also love for that ratio to come down. They talk about moderate house price inflation, which their most recent measure is 4% on average per year, which when you consider that incomes are rising around about 5% per annum per year, that would take about you know 50 to 100 years before you got your affordability ratios back down to something like they were in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Do you think we need to move faster than that and some people would say the only way to do that is really just to engineer some significant price falls, be it through a supply shock or something else. Well, first of all, can I just um, make it clear that I really disagree with the approach that's come from the Prime Minister down, which is to say, oh, well, people have a, somehow have a right to expect that their houses will continue to increase by a particular amount each year into the future. I don't think uh, anyone investing in any asset expects a guarantee from the government that that asset will continue to appreciate in one direction only. People don't expect that when they invest in farms, when they invest in tech firms. Um, I don't think that it's reasonable for the Prime Minister to dictate that for the housing market. And certainly across New Zealand's history, we have seen that the housing market has moved in different directions. So as a housing minister, you'd be okay in bringing in some policies that, uh, you know, maybe you're even advised by Treasury and others that this is such a brilliant slash horrible move that it's actually going to drive prices down. Are you okay with that as a politician? Well, I've said that I think we must be absolutely clear that home ownership in and of itself is of huge social value to New Zealand, that affordable housing underpins many of our social issues, whether it's transitory families uh, moving their kid from school to school, uh, whether it's the increasing billions we are spending on privatising rents through the accommodation supplement, whether it's the hellhole that is now emergency housing in New Zealand where we're spending a million dollars a day putting people up in motels with no support, uh, with all sorts of problems occurring. So solving this issue, I think, is of benefit to everyone. And if I were housing minister, I would be taking urgent measures immediately to require local government to release more space for development so that developers could face a more competitive land market uh, and we could see some houses coming to market at much cheaper price points. And what if they come back to you and say, well, you know, we're up against our debt limits, we can't do the pipes or the or the roads, um, you can tell me to do that, but just talk to the hand. I'd say let's do business together. We want more houses. You you want to get infrastructure funded. Let's work out how we can do that together. My view is it's really silly if you're the Minister of Housing to sit there and go, oh, well, we can't change the law because that might have effects. Uh, as the Minister, you're in charge of changing the law to achieve the outcomes you want to see. And if that means sitting down with local government and working out a deal, then do it. Talking about law changes, you know, one of the most immediate things that could uh, lower prices and um, remove housing as a financial asset that people are buying, not necessarily for a house, but to park some money, is to change the tax laws, either bring in a capital gains tax or a wealth or land tax. Um, You know, if you're about um, treating it like an emergency, surely um, looking at the tax laws is is something that um, any new housing minister would do. 
Well, actually, there have been various explorations of that issue uh, and what um, various people have said over the years is that um, you know, whether or not that has any medium to long-term impact is very questionable, uh, one. But two, the political reality is Labor has ruled out a capital gains tax, National has ruled out a capital gains tax. It's not happening. So let's just finish here with, um, let's say, you know, the election uh, in a year or two's time. What do you say to voters and to someone at the end of the third year of your first term what do you say this is what affordable housing should look like? What I would say to people at the next election is that National believes in the concept of home ownership because we believe that having a way to have a stake in your community, to have your family have some uh, stability is something that shouldn't be ex exclusively available to a small elite. It should be something that everyone can be on a pathway towards. In order to put people on that pathway, we need affordable housing across the board. We need a lot more houses being built. We need to be much more innovative about how we get those houses built, where they're built and who's building them. Uh, and we need to look at clever ways of partnering with people to help them get the, get the equity and get a stake in a home. So um, I'm getting excited about solving it. Nicola Willis from the National Party, thank you very much. No doubt we'll talk about this again because this problem's not going away in a hurry. Thank you very much. Thank you. After the break, we'll talk to Helen O'Sullivan about how we get more apartments and why we need them. She's an expert at managing and developing apartments. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank economist Sabrina Delgado on what's happening with the labour market in Aotearoa. Our slowing economy gives way to higher unemployment, and we're seeing tightness in the labour market quickly abating. Both a recovery on the supply side, with our surging migration, boosting labour supply and loosening some very tight labour market conditions. But now a stronger narrative is coming through. As consumer demand cools, so too is the demand for labour. Firms are no longer hiring with the same gusto. Already, unemployment has started to lift from record lows and we expect that to continue throughout 2024. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Sabrina and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. So, Helen, why is it we don't have many apartments or townhouses in our big cities in New Zealand? You see them overseas, why not here? The use of density as a mode in New Zealand's housing uh, scene is something, it's, it's, a, it's a developing art, I think. 
Um, part of the problem that we see in cities other than Auckland is around zoning. Um, you know, the Auckland Unitary Plan, which came into effect uh, sort of about five or six years ago, really enables the use of the medium to high density uh, zoning in Auckland. Uh, and other cities are starting to think about following suit. And if you look at the debate that you're having in Wellington around the zoning issues there, you know, it's kind of historically been we've had a big middle bit in the middle where you can do apartments and then everywhere else you just have, you know, maximum sometimes two-level housing. Tell us about the Dark Ages um, pre-unitary plan in Auckland. What could you do? What couldn't you do? Why did it make it easier to, to build those those um, properties? Look, it was wildly complicated. Apart from anything else, we didn't have the super city. So there were completely different rules if you were in the North Shore, if you were in West Auckland, if you were in Monaco. Uh, you know, just, it was, you know... Developers, such in fact as Ockham, confine themselves to working in just one part of the city because the arcane nature of all of the rulings was just it was too complicated to get your head around. You needed a planning degree to work out what you could do, and that in itself was a problem. And what about the issues around parking and balconies and those sorts of things? Why was it so hard to get that done? There were lots and lots of rules, basically, and the rules were kind of designed primarily, you would think, to actually prevent people from doing too much stuff in the suburbs. So it just kind of encouraged us moving further and further out to, to the edges of the city. And that, just in a long, skinny city like Auckland, uh, built on really unstable geologically brand new land. It just means that your infrastructure costs and requirements, uh, you're spreading it out further and further and further like a piece of chewing gum, getting further and further away from the centre where you put all of the you know, amenity and, and things like that, uh, and transport and you know, all that kind of stuff just becomes incredibly difficult. And it means that you know, as land gets scarcer, as you get more and more demand, it's going to cost you a million dollars or one and a half million dollars to buy a 500 square metre piece of land, what kind of house are you going to put on it? Only going to put an expensive house on it because it's the only way, as a developer, you get your money back. Once we got the Auckland Unitary Plan in place, that really unlocked the solution space for developers. So all of a sudden, on a piece of you know land that's sort of a thousand square metres in the mixed housing urban zone, you could do three storeys, uh, I think 30% coverage, and build 10 or 12 apartments in the space that once upon a time you would only have been able to put one whacking big expensive house. You know, it's not perfect. There's still, in my view, way too much single house zone in Auckland. Way too much of that is too close to train stations. You know, basically we should take all of our transport infrastructure and go, go mad you know, build up as high as you like in that space. Let's put the people where the stuff is that they want. So what could we do to make it easier and uh, more certain for not just investors, but for first home buyers to buy an apartment, which for many is most likely to be the first property they can buy, particularly in the big cities now? So I think taking a leaf out of the books of some of the developers who are doing this stuff well, yeah, make the body corporate really simple. 
it's curious to see the explosion of the retirement villages, which in many ways are, you know, a community, high density, medium density, living, you buy your space in this thing and it's got all sorts of services around it. Sometimes I wonder, gee, if only we could do that for actual normal apartments. <laughs> but of course, the trick is the incentives are all for the developer and the owner of the project in that they get all the capital gain, if there is any, um, uh, when there's a change of ownership. And also there's, um, there's regular fees on top of that. Is, is there an opportunity to use some of those retirement village structures or practices to you know, get a boom going? Look, I'd be really nervous about the retirement village structure for the simple reason that that issue around the capital gain that you you mentioned. I have seen one or two quasi-retirement villages where they've actually used the Unit Titles Act and the body corporate exercise uh, because there is, a, there is a little known provision that enables you to put an age limit on people if you're defining it as a retirement village. But it's all about cost, really, and you, you, you correctly identify the capital gain. You go into one of those retirement village structures, the capital gain ultimately belongs to somebody else. End of the day, a body corporate can ultimately provide whatever level of service and amenity it chooses to, but it's ultimately about what it chooses to pay for. Now, one of the complaints some people have about buying apartments or uh, townhouses particularly apartments, is that there's not a lot of land underneath that apartment, if you like. And one of the reasons people say that um, you know they're not so keen on an apartment is that you're not going to get the capital gain from that land because you don't have an awful lot of land. I just wonder how we can really make a lot of progress without you know, bringing in some sort of um, capital gains tax or wealth tax or land tax to essentially even the playing field with other investments apart from anything else. So uh, to your point around whether or not you get capital gain out of apartments, I would argue that you do get capital gain out of apartments. Personally, I am an absolute convert to apartment owning and apartment living. I have owned three and I'm going to buy my next home is another apartment. I just love it. For me, it is the, you know, I don't want a garden. I like living on top of the Grafton train station. I love living near Mangafo and the Domain and, you know, just a $6 Uber from the centre of town. That is actually what, if you're buying for the right reasons and in the right development that's built by the right developer, uh, that's what you're, it's actually the amenity and the utility value in the property that you're buying, um, not the capital gain in, you know, the piece of land uh, as a as a substitute for gold. You know, it's just, yeah, it's not a financial asset. If you buy a home which has great utility, whether you buy that to live in yourself or whether you buy it as something that you can use to provide housing to others, um, the value is in the amenity and the utility value of the home, not the gold substitute of a piece of land. And what are you seeing from the banks and the other financiers um, around apartments and um, uh, townhouse developments? Because I understand um, they, they are quite reluctant to put 
perhaps the same enthusiasm into lending that you might see in you know typical house and section deals. Yeah, look, this has been a real challenge in the apartment sector for some time. It's it's frustrating because it comes that the fear. Uh, I think in the banking sector it comes from the same place that some of the reluctance among the consumer sector comes from and that there was a period of time when we did apartments quite badly and so there was a real sense that um, we, you know, apartments per se are bad. And the frustrating part is that's not based on any analysis of the actual data. There's a proxy for value, which is just square metres of floor. And the reality is I can show you some 60 square metre apartments which are badly designed, terrible amenity, hopeless acoustics, et cetera, et cetera, which you don't want to go anywhere near. And I can show you some 37 square metre apartments which are gorgeous in a 10-home-star rated building, comfy, cosy, but they're well designed, they use the space well, and you would rather have that one than that one. And what about um, those people who look at apartments and townhouses? Maybe they live in the suburbs or in a province or, uh, and, and they say, well, this is not the New Zealand way. How are you going to bring up a family in one of those apartments? You know, what about the weekend barbecue with your friends and where are you going to park the boat? All of this stuff. Well, what do you say back to those people who say, this is not the New Zealand way? I guess I say that The New Zealand way is changing, as it has done. You know, the New Zealand way used to be something 100 years ago you and I can't remember. Uh, The world's changing and we need to evolve. We've got to respond to modern challenges and our modern challenge of living in a long, skinny country uh, and wanting to house more people um, more affordably. We've got to crack this nut of affordable housing because it is so important to New Zealand. We've got to crack the climate change nut and forcing people to build their homes ever further from the city centre and get on crowded motorways to get there uh, is something we've got to solve as well. The other thing is try before you knock it, I guess. Um, you know, and a number of the apartments, and I don't want to turn this into a, an advert for Rockham left, right and centre, but you know, the apartments they're building with the uh, with community facilities, you know, you go out to Bernoulli Gardens and there you've got the you know 120 apartments, all of which were sold under the median house price at the time. You've got a residence lounge, you've got barbecue, you've got a garden. When you go there at the weekends, there's people hanging out doing stuff collectively because families are getting smaller. You know, the household units are smaller. The opportunity in a complex like that is your kids are hanging out with their neighbours. Yeah, they're getting that community feel. So I guess my thing is we need to start thinking about vertical villages instead of just our, you know, horizontal villages, which is what we're used to. The New Zealand way is changing and we just, we have to evolve or we're not going to create these big challenges that are in front of us. Helen, thank you very much. Pleasure. Well, Helen is hopeful and enthusiastic about solving our housing affordability crisis by increasing the number of apartments. But let's talk to KiwiBank's Jared Kerr.
And there we have it, Helen O'Sullivan talking with great passion about what's needed to re-engineer our cities, not just from a housing affordability point of view, but also from a climate change point of view. And just to finish off here on When the Facts Change, together with Kiwi Bank, we've got Kiwi Bank's Chief Economist, Jared Kerr, with us to talk about housing supply. You spend a lot of time looking at the supply-demand outlook for housing and whether we've got enough houses uh, And this issue of medium density housing, more apartments, more townhouses, there's certainly been an increase in the share of building consents going into uh, uh, um, apartments, that sort of thing, particularly in Auckland, um, Christchurch, uh, and to a lesser extent, Queenstown. There's going to be, you know, a a bigger drive within government and hopefully in the the big cities to try and get more of these uh, uh, apartments up and running. What are the prospects for more of these, you know, medium density, small apartments, townhouses to to really solve this problem? Look, I think the main point that we're all making here is that this is a supply problem. We do talk a lot about the demand, but there are only minor issues with demand as far as I'm concerned. The big issue in New Zealand is the lack of supply. And when we model the New Zealand housing market, the population uh, growth. We've had extraordinary population growth in the last 10 years. Number of people per house, how many how many houses are actually being built? We haven't built enough for 10 years. So we've got a shortage of at least 80,000 homes. We've seen a big pickup in consents, and that's encouraging. That's great. But we need that to accelerate. We need to you know, inject some steroids. And it'll still take at least two to three years to run down uh, that shortage. And that's the only way I can see this housing market balancing out and prices balancing out, uh, and that is to ramp up supply. And you're absolutely right. The easiest, most efficient, most effective way to do that is to focus on you know, higher density dwellings. And when you drive around New Zealand, the quarter acre with the big house slapped in the middle of it needs to change. That quarter acre needs to be chopped up into four. Um, we need more dwellings uh, on, on each site, basically. And it is doable. We've seen it in Australia. We've seen it overseas. They had a housing boom over there. They had a housing development boom and house prices have gone sideways, particularly in high density in Sydney and large cities for the last five years. And they're much better in places like in Sydney and Melbourne at actually building these three, four-storey apartment blocks where instead of one house on that section, you've got 16 units. And often there are studio apartments, one bedroom, maybe two bedrooms to accommodate people who maybe aren't in those traditional families that um, we all thought we were going to be in in the 50s and 60s. Tell us a little bit about how the population is changing, how it's ageing and what that's doing to household structure and sizes and why some of these smaller you know, apartments, studios, one bedrooms actually might be quite useful. Yeah, I'm glad you raised that because it's an interesting point. Um, we have an ageing population. The, ho- the whole world does. It's just a matter of where you sit. And as you age, you you downsize. And it is these people that will be downsizing into smaller dwellings and there will be fewer people per dwelling. We need to take that into account. So the way forward is to provide higher density, smaller dwellings for an ageing population. That That is the answer. And it enables you to build at scale. 
you can get companies, as you say, putting 14, 15, you know, 1,500 townhouses together and building at a scale at which the economies of scale makes things a lot cheaper and the, the per unit cost comes down. And that's the important part. In New Zealand, we need to break the bespoke model. This go out, I've got to build a house which is just for me, that looks nothing like anyone else's, but I'll accept a lower quality dwelling just so I look different to the person next to me. We've got to get rid of that idea. And I actually love walking down Sydney streets where you see terraced houses all the way down. They look gorgeous and they were built 100 years ago. The other thing that I found fascinating in Sydney and Melbourne, and we're seeing it now, is that rents are falling. Uh, partly, of course, because there's fewer international students, but also they've had a lot of supply hit the market. So not only are rents falling, but in that more intense area close to the CBD, particularly in Melbourne and Sydney, prices are falling as well. And it strikes me this will be one of the extra pressures, if they need any more, for the government to um, really act here. Because when things open up post-COVID, a whole bunch of young New Zealanders who will have wanted to do an OE anyway will look across at Sydney and Melbourne and where previously they might have seen, you know, a very high house price and a very high rent, they'll go, gee, it's cheaper to rent a really nice apartment in Sydney than it is in Wellington or Auckland. And we'll watch in the next couple of weeks what the government does on its side of the ledger with particularly um, the tax system, uh, what it does for uh, rental property investors is talk about extending the bright line test uh, what the government will do with the tax rules for investors, whether people can claim tax against the interest they pay. So we'll look forward to yet more action on the housing front uh, from the government in the next couple of weeks. Jared Kerr from Kiwi Bank, Chief Economist. Jared, thank you very much. And thank you for having me on. It's uh, great to be working together again. Well, that was When the Facts Change, our first podcast. Thank you to all the spin-off members. We look forward to coming back and talking about all the fun things around house prices, interest rates, the economy, politics, technology, climate change. When the Facts Change, I'm Bernard Hickey. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.